Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. Uh, really excited that we all get an opportunity to connect this morning here in our weekend services and connect with God's Word as well. So <clears throat> super excited about that. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, some of you may not know me. Some of you probably do know me. And others of you, this third segment of the population, you probably just know me as the dude that stands up here and sings and occasionally plays the guitar. So I thought it would be rather pertinent for me to just do a quick introduction. If you don't know me, <clears throat> excuse me, my name is Seth. Um, I am one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus of Grace Church. And specifically, I have the privilege of overseeing our creative arts ministry, which is our music as well as some of the technical elements that Sarah Beth talked about. We definitely want to promote Explore, by the way. That's going to be an awesome thing, so connect there. Uh, but I also oversee... Um, our Know It Ministries as well. And so essentially Know It is our endeavor as a church community to know the gospel, uh, to know Jesus more, uh, to know the Bible as a means to know Jesus more, and really to be able to equip other people in our campus community and abroad to be able to connect with those things. So that's a little bit of what I do. Um, let me just say if I don't know you or if I've never had the opportunity to connect with you, uh, man, I really love meeting some new folks and seeing what God is doing in your lives if you've connected here at Medina. So I would just absolutely love nothing better than maybe after the services here today or after the service here today, um, if you just tap me on the shoulder and I'll actually just even give you permission to, if you want, you can throw a blunt object at me. That'd be fine too. <clears throat> so you can do that. Uh, preferably something soft. So uh, that, would, that would help me out a little bit. But nevertheless, uh, just to be able to connect with you is going to be awesome. So please, please avail yourself of that opportunity. I'd love to get a chance to know you. Uh, so as many of you know, we have been in a series that has spanned the course of our entire summer. And that series has been called Grow, as you can see in the graphic behind me. And here's basically what we've been doing throughout this series. Throughout this series, Grow, we have been taking a look at the book of Colossians. Specifically with how the book of Colossians gives a tried and true path, bit by bit, passage by passage, chunk by chunk, a tried and true path <clears throat> to spiritual growth and maturity. And this is fascinating because you see this not only in the contents of the book of Colossians, as that's shared by the Apostle Paul who wrote that book, but also even in the way that the book is structured and how it flows from start to finish gives us this sort of indication that there is a pathway to spiritual growth that God wants for our lives. And so if you've been a part of this series, you know that it has been a very enriching series. We've learned a ton. And so let me just say this too. Um, if you haven't had an opportunity yet to connect with some of the previous conversations in this series, or maybe uh, you've been on vacation through the summer months and missed a few here or there, let me just say that uh, if you go to our website, I would encourage you, medinaeast.graceohio.org, you can click <clears throat> on the teachings tab, and basically every single conversation that we've had thus far in this series is going to be there either video or via podcast audio. So this is a great way for you to catch up on some of the things that, that we've been talking about in this series, as well as if you have already connected with the series, a great way to refresh your mind, refresh your memory on some of the things that we've been talking about through the book of Colossians. So uh, by way of just kind of appealing back to uh, some of the things that we talked about last week, because it's going to be important to recap as we head on further into our conversation today. <clears throat> last week, Pastor Tony led us through an awesome, an awesome conversation uh, through the first 17 verses of chapter 3 in Colossians. It was a great conversation, and basically Tony said there that the Apostle Paul in that passage was outlining what we might call is a threefold 
progression of spiritual growth. A threefold progression of spiritual growth and maturity that's found in that passage. So again, by way of recap, because this is going to be important, let's just do that real quick. I'm going to put some stuff on the screen to help us out as well. Here's what we said last week from the first 17 verses in Colossians 3. We said that first and foremost, foundationally, fundamentally, spiritual growth is initiated in an identity shift, a change in identity. And this change in identity is something that comes from God's declaration alone because of what Jesus Christ has done in his death and in his resurrection. That followers of Jesus, that those who put their faith in Christ and commit to follow him in discipleship are now declared something brand new and different by God. And then we said that this identity shift in the process of spiritual growth will inevitably start to produce what we might call belief changes. A change in belief, a change in thought patterns, a change in the way we process. Now, elsewhere in Paul's writings, he will refer to this idea as having or possessing the mind of Christ. And essentially what he means by that is from a new identity that God gives us, that there are now different beliefs and thought patterns that I process through life increasingly as Jesus would process through life if he lived my life. And so that identity shift that's fundamental, you can't go backwards in this process, you can't omit any part of this process, it starts with the declaration of God and his working, that God begins to produce new beliefs, and then eventually these things lead to demonstrable or observable character change. And in verse 12 of chapter 3, Paul describes a Christ follower is able to actually be humble. He's able to be patient, he's able to be meek, he's able to genuinely love and forgive other people. Why? Because God is at work in this process of spiritual growth. And so again, God initiates in offering the new identity in Christ, kicks off this process, this dynamic process, where a person following Jesus can actually put to death old habits of self-centered living. And they can actually, in this life, like embrace the life that Jesus, the transformational life that Jesus offers them. And again, in a nutshell, this is what we said was that threefold process that we find in the first 17 verses of Colossians chapter 3. And so while we do see this dynamic process at work, and Paul is teaching this, there is kind of a lingering question that emerges if we follow some of this process through to its logical conclusion. So while Paul is telling us that followers of Jesus are brand new people and that they can adopt certain new qualities or characteristics in their life that are conducive to the new life that Jesus offers, the question then kind of naturally comes up, and, and it's this. All right, so how do I know that I'm engaging in the authentic, the genuine, the real deal kind of transformation that is a part of that process? Do, do, I, do I go by my feelings? Do I feel different? I think sometimes, for those of you who follow Jesus, you're engaged in that process, but sometimes you don't feel all that different. Is it, is it something that I do? Am I supposed to check off a whole bunch of boxes and that's how I know that I'm really engaging in this real process? Or how do I know that I'm not fooling myself and I'm actually engaged in a completely different process than that? And furthermore, what are, we might say, the signs or like the indicators that I'm actually buying into that genuine, real deal growth that God offers in my life because of what Jesus has done? Now, as I thought about this, as processing through this this past week, um, the first thing I thought about, honestly, was my five-year-old son. Um, now, dude, I love this little guy. He's, he's so awesome. I love my five-year-old son. My, my five-year-old son loves things, too. 
But his first love, his first and foremost love is Batman. That's right, Batman. <laughs> this, this kid is insane. He has got so many cowls, Batman cowls. He's got so many different Batman shirts with the different versions of the Batman symbol that are on those shirts. He's got a whole bunch of capes. He's got those gloves with those like three fangs that come out. He's got the boots. He even has a utility belt, and I think maybe it has shark repellent in it. <laughs> so, so this kid absolutely loves Batman, so much so that <clears throat> I don't think that there is a day that goes by where I don't come around a corner at my house and I'm not unsuspectingly assaulted by a barrage of punches to the knee from a pint-sized version of the Cape Crusader. <laughs> like this, this, kid, this kid really loves Batman. And so as I got to thinking about his love for Batman this past week, I, it, it began to dawn on me a little bit that he loves Batman so much. And when he plays around as Batman, he acts as Batman, I, as his father, I call him Batman all the time. All the time, like, hey, Batman, you doing that thing? You beating up that guy? Get the Riddler. He's over there, right? And I think that I've discovered that um, in calling him Batman and referring to him as Batman so often, I think I may, have I may have inadvertently given him a new identity. Now, think about it. I'm his father, and he's still at the age of five where he, like, takes a lot of his cues on right and wrong and good and bad and where he's supposed to go from me. And so I'm calling him Batman all the time, so much so that I think I've created this identity shift for him that has materialized in some beliefs. Like, guys, this is freaky. I think he actually believes he's Batman sometimes. I really, really do. Like, so much so that I think if we were to go to the square or maybe in a park and someone, someone were to be mugged, he might actually leap into action. <laughs> there's, there's about a 50-50 there, I think. And so as I thought about this, I realized, like, wait a minute. So he's got a new identity. He believes that he's Batman. My son could walk around his entire life. And by the way, I do plan to follow this through as long as possible in a weird, twisted social experiment. It'd be awesome. But he could go through his entire life, walk around. He could have a new identity. He could really believe that, his, that he's Batman. But in the end of the, at the end of the day, he's just fooling himself. I mean, he could he can engage in this identity change. He could believe he could even manifest certain behavioral characteristics of Batman. He could go in our backyard and punch and kick and throw batarangs at the air, calling it an imaginary villain. And yet, at the end of the day, he's just fooling himself. And so, as I think we talk about this idea of spiritual growth and maturity, when we talk about growing as a follower of Jesus we should probably start to think in some similar ways. And the question again is, well, how do I know that I'm not just fooling myself when I say that I'm engaged in this process of spiritual transformation that Christ offers me? For that matter, again, what signs, what indicators, what evaluators? We might say, what's the dashboard with all the warning lights that lets me know that I'm tapping into the real thing? The real thing, spiritual transformation and growth. And fortunately for us, we talked last week about Colossians 3, 1 through 17. God does not leave us without an answer to some of those questions. As a matter of fact, if we were to continue onward in Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18, we find some solid answers to these questions in a way that can allow us to be confident of the spiritual growth that we can tap into in Christ. 
So here's what we're going to do this morning. I want to invite you, if you brought your Bibles here this morning, uh, go ahead and take those out and turn to Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. Um, real quick, if you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, you don't have one here, a um, couple options for you. One, it's going to be on the screen behind me, the text, so you can follow along that way. Another option is we have some Bibles under the seats in front of you. You can just go ahead and snag one of those. If you're using one of those Bibles, Colossians 3.18 will be at the very bottom of the page, on page 822 in those Bibles. And let me just also say before we dive in, if you don't have a Bible to call your very own, um, or maybe if you have an outdated or archaic Jeffrey Chaucer, Canterbury Tales, Middle English version of the Bible that you don't understand, listen, we just want you to take one of those Bibles home with you. Uh, Just consider it maybe our gift to you and also our way of just demonstrating and saying that we think you really ought to have this book because we believe that the words of God and what he wants for us in our lives are contained within it. So Colossians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 18, and actually we are going to go through the first verse of chapter 4. Here's what Paul tells us. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Just hold on, guys. Let's go through the whole thing. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Again, we got to get through this, so hold on. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. All right, so some of us, maybe even most of us, are already going to come to this passage with a little bit of apprehension, right? from some of the things that we think that Paul might be talking about here and some of the subject matter that he deals with. But in order for us to to avoid missing the main point of what Paul is really trying to drive at for here in our conversation and spiritual growth, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to draw out some of the background and, and a little bit of an explanation of what's going on in this passage. See, my guess is that there are probably two antennae that start like buzzing when we come to this passage. And the first one is that little bit about wives submitting to their husbands. You know, what's that all about? Isn't that oppressive or isn't that demeaning? And why would Paul agree with something like that? And the second one is this institution of slavery. Like, what is Paul doing with that? Is he agreeing with it? Does he ignore it? What's his deal? And I mean, isn't slavery just a moral, flat out, a moral and ethical atrocity? And so as we think about some of these things, let's actually deal with the slavery issue first, okay? So what we have to understand first and foremost is that slavery, the institution of slavery, in the Roman culture of Paul's day was very, very different than the slavery we might think about if we think through our heritage as an American country, Okay, so the first thing we have to know is that uh, there is a huge difference 
between the two, and that uh, it usually manifested itself in the fact that the, the slavery or that culture, slavery was probably more akin to our, under, our modern-day understanding of an employer-employee relationship. And, and here's how this worked out. Now, anybody in that ancient culture, the culture of Paul's day, anyone could willingly and voluntarily sell themselves into slavery. And this actually happened frequently. And here's, here's kind of the scenario that would usually play out. Usually if a person was wound up being indebted or had a great deal of debt and they had that debt uh, toward a wealthy Roman landowner, they had the legitimate option, since they couldn't pay the debt, they had the legitimate option to sell themselves into slavery. And so what they would do is they would meet with this landowner. They would form kind of like a contractual agreement. They would bond themselves to the landowner. And by the way, in other translations of your Bible, other English translations, sometimes slaves is translated as bond servants. So that's where you get this term. The person would voluntarily, willingly bond themselves to the master of the house or the household owner, and they would serve the master for a specified or agreed upon period of time. And the idea was they would come under the master's protection and his provision, and uh, they would enjoy the security and provision. They would be kind of part of the household, part of the family in that culture. And then a lot of times what would happen is after the, uh, the person in slavery worked out their, uh, their, their debt to that master, and when they were set free, a lot of times because of the security and the provision that they enjoyed by being a part of that master's family, they would willingly sell themselves back into slavery or bond servanthood with this master so that they could again enjoy the protection and the lifestyle they had with that master. And so here's the deal. What I don't want to come across and say is that slavery, like I don't want to over-glorify slavery in the ancient Roman world. I mean, there were certainly dysfunctions and there were certainly abuses within that social system or that social structure. And so also, like we have to understand that the Bible itself never once condones. It just isn't, it's not okay with slavery. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches that every single human being is made in the image of God. And that as a result of them being made in the image of God, there is an associated dignity that human, de- human beings possess because of that. Such that the idea of one person, one image bearer, owning another image bearer as property is just not something that the Bible is altogether cool with. And so what we have to see is, we can't necessarily just look at the social institution. What we have to see is that Paul is actually leveraging this common social structure that everyone in his day and age, the people of Colossae, everyone would have known about this and would have understood it. Because Paul is not looking to point out from the outside the atrocities of this social institution of slavery in Roman culture. But what he is doing is he's simply drawing on that structure of the Roman household that the slave would have gone into to make a powerful point about how we might evaluate whether we're tapping into the real deal spiritual growth that Christ offers us or not. And one more background piece. Uh, mentioned the household. Actually, the, the household concept in ancient Roman society would have been pivotal to not only understanding this idea of slavery and how Paul uses it, but also into what really Paul is driving at here. See, the household in that society was considered the essential structure um, that made everything else in that society tick. Everything else was founded on a healthy understanding of the roles and the structure of the household. 
So much so that 200 years before Paul even put pen to parchment here for Colossians, 200 years prior, the great philosopher Aristotle was trying to speak to his audience about the fundamental importance of a good and well-structured household for the promotion of the better and greater good in all of Roman and Greek society. Here's what he said when he wrote. He said, the parts of the household management correspond to the persons who compose the household. And a complete household consists of slaves and freemen. Now we should begin by examining everything in its fewest possible elements. What's Aristotle driving at there? Well, he's basically saying that if the household is the fundamental bedrock upon which a good society is built, we have to figure out what is the essence of a household. What is it that is its irreducible minimum, like we can't get any less than this, the roles and the responsibilities of a household, what are they? And this is what he says. The first and fewest possible parts of a family are master and slave, husband and wife, father and children. You guys see what Paul's doing there, right? When Paul writes, he's not inventing some new social institution. He's not even looking to critique that social institution. Instead, what he's doing is trying to say, hey, Colossians, this is what you see every day. Now here's how Christ's transformation can reinvent that from the inside out. See, Paul writing to Colossians about these things and these three sets of relationships is about the same as if I were to write to you today encouraging you on how to relate to your wife, your kids, your boss, your coworkers, maybe people that work with you or for you, your investment banker, your son's t-ball coach, right? Any relationship that is common, mundane, and everyday in your everyday life. That's the equivalent of what Paul is doing here. And so while Paul's not necessarily interested in reinventing the social institution of the Roman household or slavery or other things, it's interesting. What he is doing is he is looking to, within the confines of that social structure, show how the gospel completely transforms how people are are to relate to one another. What he's doing is actually very highly subversive within the confines of that social structure. And so here's what we're going to do. Since this might be a little fuzzy for us, let's plot this out for a second. Here's what we'll do. Let's take the three sets of relationships that Paul lists in Colossians 3.18 through 4.1, Let's plot them up on the screen in two columns. Now, in the left-hand column, let's put this up. The wives, children, and slaves. Now, these would have been the roles in Roman society that would have been the servant kind of roles. They would have been a little more demeaning or menial. They wouldn't have held a lot of social prestige. Those are these roles on the left-hand side. Now, the roles on the right-hand side we'll put up here are husband, father, and master. Now, keep in mind that with the household concept, these are all the same person, okay? Now, these are the roles that would have held a lot of power, a lot of authority. They would have had a lot of privilege and control in that particular culture, in that society. So here's what we're going to do. Now, let's put the words up, the verbs that Paul uses as the left column interacts with the right-hand column. Okay? And so here's the words we've got. We've got submit, obey, and obey. All right, now for our purposes, just to kind of flesh out this passage, because we don't have time to go through all three of these, let's actually use the first one, that submit right there, let's use this one as a test case for us, okay? So we're going to unpack this word a little bit. Now, before we do that, I need to ask your permission on something. 
I need to ask your permission to geek out on words for a second. Okay? You guys good with that? And since you didn't respond, let's go through this experiment. Here's what I want you to do. Follow me. Ready? Take your index finger on your dominant hand. Okay? Everybody, come on. Let's do it. Put it right in between your eyes on the bridge of your nose. And if you have glasses, this is going to be even better, right? Now, take the index finger of your other hand, your non-dominant hand, put it up like this. Now, start to wave it back and forth like this. And then maybe start to wave your head back and forth a little bit. And here's what I want you to say on the count of three. I just want you to say the word, words, on the count of three. Ready? Everybody, come on. One, two, three. Words. Thank you for your permission for me to geek out on words for a second. All right, here we go. We're about to geek out. This word submit in the original language, in the Greek, is the word hupotasso. Everyone say that. Hupotasso. Okay, so this is the word. Now, hupotasso is a compound word that is composed of a prefix and then a standalone word that, would, that everybody would have understood in Paul's day. Okay, so the prefix is hupo. And the prefix hupo simply means under. Okay? Underneath, below, beneath, the prefix hupo simply means under. Now, the verb tasso simply meant to place or to arrange. For our purposes, it means to place. So if you take the, this prefix and you smash it to the already existing word, you literally get hupotasso means to place under. Okay? Now, we could probably understand why we might have a little bit of a problem with this word, especially with some of the presuppositions or connotations that we have with wives submitting to your husbands by this picture of a controlling husband who points at his wife and demands that she do certain things, cook clean and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of times we'll look at this word submit and we'll immediately identify it as a pejorative, meaning like it's negative and it's demeaning and it's not right. But if you think about it, at the common core of this definition, hupotasso, does not have to mean all that. As a matter of fact, hupotasso could just as easily mean someone who voluntarily or willingly decides to come underneath another person and a weight that they carry to help support that weight that the other person might not be able to carry on their own. So voluntarily, willingly, coming underneath this weight so that in collaboration, two people could lift the weight and promote that weight upward, whereas one person might not be able to do that on their own. So this is something that we have to see. And, and one, one, more nerd, one more nerd thing, and I promise I'm done on words, okay? This word hupotasso, in the original language, in the Greek, is in something called the reflexive tense. Now, the reflexive tense is simply an action done by a person that is done to that same person that does the action. Got it? So it's an action that I do to myself. So a reflexive case would be I shaved myself or I shaved my face, right? Uh, reflexive could also be I peed myself. <laughs> one of those two things I've done earlier this week, and you can guess which one it is. So, um, but think about it. If hupotasso... If hupotasso is in the reflexive case, this furthers the point that we're trying to make. Hupotasso is a wife voluntarily, willingly, out of love and respect and care for her husband and the weight that God designed them to share together to voluntarily, to, them, to herself, come underneath to help support the weight that he could not support himself. 
And I, I think this is interesting. This is a great test case because the word obey that appears twice, once for children and once for slaves, it's practically synonymous with the word submit in that culture. Maybe a little bit of a nuance, maybe a little bit of a difference, but the point remains the same. Is like whatever your role on the left, Paul's like saying, do it voluntarily, do it willingly. Each one and each role and each responsibility is to play their part so well that together in collaboration they could all in unity lift up whatever weight that family or that household was called to carry. And if you think about this, look at the surrounding context of these three verbs, right? The reason given for submission and obedience from the left column to the right has nothing to do with the command of some despotic overlord. I mean, look at this here in the text real quick. Submission is done by the wife to the husband, what? As is fitting in the Lord. Obedience of children is done, what? For this pleases the Lord. Bondservants obey earthly masters. Notice Paul's very specific on the earthly part. Bondservants obey earthly masters, what? Out of reverence for the Lord. Working for the Lord, knowing that it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Do you guys see this? What Paul's doing is radical, right? Paul is taking the common social conventions and structures of his day, the normal relationships of everyday life, and he is saying that the gospel, that Jesus Christ himself, that the gospel transforms our motivation for operating within those mundane relationships. He's not doing anything new. He's saying that the gospel transforms the motivation that you and I have for operating in those relationships. And if you think about it, the same thing could be said to be true as the right-hand column interacts with the left-hand column. Right? Paul says to husbands... Don't be harsh with your wives. Now, this would have been something that would have been very common in Roman society. Instead, Paul says, love your wives. And this love is not some sort of fleeting affection or butterflies in the stomach that appear every time I'm in close proximity with another person. This love is a deep love where a person is willing to expend every single amount of energy and exhaust every resource for the benefit of another person so that another person could flourish and grow all the way to the point of someone sacrificing their very life so that another person could flourish. That's what husbands are being asked to do in light of the gospel toward their wives. And if you think about it, it even extends further. Fathers are not to discourage or exasperate or embitter their children. Why? Because that typically happened in Paul's day in the conventional Roman household structure. Instead, Paul's like, no, 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 no. In the negative, he says, encourage your kids. Invest in them. Pour into them. Help them grow up. Help them also learn how to shoulder the weight of responsibilities within their lives. And, and think about it, the last role, being just and fair to slaves, which again was often unheard of in that society, that's motivated by an appeal to God himself who is the master of all. These employees or these slaves are to be treated well because why? Well, because God said so. And after all, he's the master of everything. So in other words, whatever you roll back and forth, the principle remains true. Spiritual growth will, authentic spiritual growth, will manifest itself in radical 
other-centeredness in the closest relationships that you have in life. And remember, like, just don't forget that. These are the common everyday relationships, these ones that we, had, we saw up on the screen behind me. So we can't miss the implication that we have for you and I, for our lives as we look to discover what it means to follow Jesus and manifest some of these things. It's the gospel works something in you that winds up having the real-time product of that work in you spill over into those relationships. So now we have to ask ourselves these kinds of questions in light of what Paul is doing here. We, we have to examine the people that are closest to us. Think about your friends, the friendships that you have in life. These are the questions that Paul wants us to ask as we evaluate whether we're tapping in. Like, are my friendships healthy? Do my friendships exist to encourage? Or the, are, are my friendships characteristic of, is, is edification and encouragement a characteristic of my friendships in those close relationships? And we have to ask questions like, do those friendships exist in my life more for what I give or for what I receive? Likewise, as we think about maybe those of you in the room who are managers or bosses or have employees under your care, the evaluation, the question is, how are those relationships? Are you really out for that person's good? Are you really out to grow and to develop that person into the person that God wants them to be in that workplace? Or is your interaction with them simply concerned with the bottom line that they can help you produce? A further evaluation is, for those of us who are married in this room, as we think about our spouses, are we saying things like, oh man, I'm so into God's word and God's just doing amazing work in my life and I pray so often and it's just so awesome and yet you walk around leaving in your wake relational shrapnel with your spouse. And as we think about even our children, for those of us who are parents, we have to start asking ourselves the question, how are my kids really doing? How is my relationship with them? Is it characteristic of encouragement and growth in whatever I do? Or is it for something different? You know, I've already shared with you guys uh, my son's Batman issues. Um, so what you don't know maybe is that he has two older sisters. Um, and his oldest sister, my firstborn, is 10 years old. And let me just tell you guys, uh, for almost the entirety of her life, from the moment she arrived in this world, she has been a challenge, okay? She has been a challenge, all right? Now, listen, I know that my wife and I are not the greatest parents in the world. We are far from it. So we have kind of like some ownership in that whole challenging endeavor. However, I will say that I stand very confident that there are certain predispositions that children just bring into the world with them. They just do, Okay? And so this is the case with, with my 10-year-old. Now, she's been very rough, and maybe the best word to describe her and her personality is, from the moment she entered this world, she has been particular. Very particular. So we have had constant whining over the course of these 10 years. We have had multiple fits at various targets in the greater Akron and Cleveland area. And we, and we have had... Just an absolute refusal to do anything that even smells like a response to an, a request from mom and dad in obedience. So this is what we are faced with. Now, recently, um, my, my daughter, my 10-year-old, she had the opportunity to go to junior camp. 
Now, here's the deal, guys. If you don't know what junior camp is, you've got to find out. If you have a child who is in fourth, fifth, or sixth grade, and I think it would be for the next year, uh, junior camp, you have to go talk to a Power Kids volunteer or one of our Power Kids coordinators because it's awesome. It's basically a week-long camping experience, and I put camping in air quotes because it's far more luxurious than that, but it's a week-long camping experience where kids just can uh, partake in a lot of these awesome events. They have a ton of fun. They, they uh, bunk with new friends. They make new relationships. They dig in further with relationships they have. They, they, they get to meet new people and all that kind of stuff, and, and po- quite possibly the best part about junior camp is that there are concentrated times and opportunities in that week where kids can get to know who Jesus is, the Jesus of the Bible, and they can invest and develop in a relationship with him. It's awesome. So you definitely want to ask Power Kids about that. But so as I mentioned, my daughter got home from junior camp. Uh, this was a couple months ago. And uh, she was excited. She was telling us all the stories about the fun things that she did with, uh, with, with her friends at junior camp and how she actually went outside of her normal menu of grilled cheese, mac and cheese, and chicken nuggets. And she actually ate outside that menu, which was fantastic. And uh, so she's telling us all these things that she did, and I was just like wowed by it. And then she just kind of paused, and she told me, oh, and by the way, Mom and Dad, um, I, I accepted Jesus into my life. These were her words, for real. <laughs> I accepted Jesus into my life for real. And my wife and I were like really, really excited by that. We, we just encouraged her. We gave her a big hug, and we just said, that's great, honey. And then we did also go the extra mile, and we said, hey, you know, maybe it's a good idea to maybe read your Bible before bed every night, you know, as a way to kind of keep keep this relationship with Jesus, not only just to float, but invest in it and grow in it. And she agreed, and um, we hugged her again, and then she left, and that was that. And uh, I got to be honest with you guys, I'm a little unashamed to say this, not just as a pastor, but as a father. Um, I, that's, that whole conversation just dropped from my radar, just dropped from my radar. And uh, it could be that she's accepted Jesus into her life before, but uh, so, so that might be a consideration, but it really isn't an excuse. I mean, I'm just ashamed, like, I forgot, totally forgot. Until about two weeks later, when I was walking down the hall in our house, and I passed her room, and I had to stop because I nearly had a heart attack. I looked in her room, and about five or ten minutes before, her mom had asked her to do her weekly chores in her room. So to clean up her room, tidy it up, and to take off the old sheets from the bed and put on new sheets. Now, this was a debacle in every other instance in, in our house. But I looked inside her room, and her bed was made, and the room was picked up. And I looked at, like, I examined the way she put her sheets on there. Like, this kid put a ton of work into that. She invested her whole self in that. And I thought to myself, this is crazy. So I, I, I went downstairs and I went all around the house looking for her and she wasn't even there. Why? Because two minutes prior to that, her mom had asked her to go down the street to pick up our mail and she just willingly responded like that. And I thought, what is this elixir that you have sipped? <laughs> like, this is alchemy. This is like witch's brew or wizardry or something like that. And then it hit me. It hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my gosh. She's changed. She's, she's changed. 
She's connecting with the real deal spiritual growth because she made a commitment to Jesus two weeks before. And this identity that God gives her because Jesus died on the cross for her and rose again to give her a new life that she doesn't just have to wait until she goes to heaven to receive. She can participate and grow in that life now. God has given her a new identity in Christ. It's starting to play out in different attitudes toward her mom and dad. And it's, it's delivering into demonstrable, observable behavior. She is changing. And it's the power of God. You can't manufacture that. You can't ask her to do more or to do better. And, and the things that we do ask her to do, her belief systems is just totally revolutionized. She's not looking at our requests to help out around the house to shoulder that load as a household together. She's not looking at those requests to serve around the house as just another way that mom and dad are keeping me down and I gotta check off this list and I have to be dutiful and I have to be obedient. Think about the common Roman social structures of Paul's day in this. She's not looking at that. Instead, the gospel at work in her life is now manifesting itself in her looking at opportunities for obedience and love to her mom and dad, these are opportunities that she gets a chance to love the Jesus that loved her first by dying and rising for her, by having that love work out and love others in her closest relationships. Not in the relationships that are way out there across the world, but first and foremost, in the relationships that are right in front of her, right in her face. This is just powerful to me. I think this is the kind of real deal spiritual growth. This is what it will manifest. And the Apostle Paul is telling you and I some amazing things here. He's like, if you really, really want to know if you're tapping into the new life that is yours in Christ, take a look at the mundane, average, common, sometimes we say boring relationships of the people that you see and interact with every single day. My daughter's example reminds me of this amazing quote by a New Testament scholar called F.F. F. Bruce as he comments on this passage that we've been looking at in Colossians. Just listen to what he says. He says, It is in the closest and most familiar relationships of daily living that the reality of one's Christian profession will normally be manifest, if at all. If at all. See, as we start to reflect a little bit on some of these things for our own lives, I think when we look at the evaluators of whether we're growing spiritually or tapping into the real deal spiritual growth, the dashboard, if you will, a lot of times our measurements aren't these things. Sometimes for some of us, like the measurements are, well, how many minutes reading the Bible did I log every day? Or how many minutes in prayer did I log every day? And for some of us, it's... Uh, it's what percentage of my income did I either give to the church or some local charitable organization? For some of us, we'll drift into thinking that, oh, like how many, let's count how many old ladies that we helped across the street today, how many good deeds we did, random, act of, random acts of kindness to random people. And even for some of us, uh, we look at the percentage of people that I interacted with in my day that I actually shared Jesus to. We'll go with those measurements and evaluators. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Those are absolutely amazing things. They are a part of transformation. Doing those things is a result of the transformation that Jesus is producing in the lives of his followers. 
they're also catalysts to help you engage further in that very transformation. But it's interesting to me when Paul looks to evaluate whether somebody is tapping into the real deal growth in Christ, he actually doesn't say look up. He doesn't even say look inwardly. Instead, Paul says, look around you. These are the tangible, gospel-transformed opportunities for you to love people radically, just like the radical love that Jesus displayed for us on the cross. We see that real progress and spiritual growth in Colossians, Paul shines the light on the closest relationships of people in his culture, and he challenges them to see the end result of that new identity in Christ that starts over there. The result of it is genuine, concrete, tangible, closest relationships that already exist for us. I'm going to ask the band to come up now as we look to kind of close things out. And here's what I want to do. I want to press some of these ideas even further down into the context of our everyday lives, like your life, my life. And I want to do that in issuing two challenges to two different audiences. The first audience is for those of you who call yourselves followers of Jesus. You're claiming to embrace and buy into this real deal spiritual growth. I I just want to challenge you. As we sing and as the band plays and as we do this together, I invite you to take a, a prayerful posture and begin to use those relationships as an evaluator for your own life. How are your relationships? With your kids, with your coworkers, with your spouse, with the common people that you see in everyday life, how are your relationships? Are they broken? Do they need healing? God gives you that as an indicator that there's more to the life of Christ than maybe what you're buying into. And here's the deal. What I'm not saying is that there aren't, that every single relationship that's fractured and broken is all your fault. That's not what I'm saying. There are clearly times where somebody is investing in a relationship with Jesus authentically. They are genuinely trying to love and serve another person, but relationships are a two-way street and the brokenness and the dysfunction may be, the majority of it may be the other person. I'm not really talking about that. I'm talking about the relationships that are right in front of you, that you know, that are giving you an indicator that Jesus wants to offer you more of the kind of transformation he does in your life. And the key is not working harder to try to serve, not checking off a, a, a box or several boxes or, or working really tough to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and I just got to do better in that relationship. No, actually, the evaluator also speaks to the fact that if these relationships are broken, it's time to go back to the new identity that God gives you in Christ. It's time to go back to the new beliefs that begin to characterize who you are and engage in that authentic process of spiritual formation because part of the new life God offers you is healing and restoration of these horizontal relationships. I encourage you, if you're a Christ follower, just do that as we have the few minutes here in worship as the band plays and sings. And then for that second audience, if you don't follow Jesus, I'm actually just gonna ask you the same question just to reflect on this, maybe from a different angle. And the question is, how are your relationships? Are they broken? Are they fractured? Do relationships that you interact with on a daily basis just hurt? 
I would submit to you that there is still nothing that you can manufacture in and of yourself that is gonna bring you restoration, reconciliation, and healing in those relationships. I would actually submit to you that if you want to see a new kind of way of relating with other people in those relationships, you actually need to go back to this new identity that is offered to you freely in Jesus Christ to jump on board this process of spiritual transformation that God alone offers you and he does the work in your life to produce it. So maybe, just maybe for you today, you're just willing to surrender your life, just say, my relationships are a mess. It's an indicator. I'm gonna dive headlong by faith into Jesus and what he did for me so that he can make me new and produce a difference in the way that I interact with other people. Again, Paul's not inventing anything new, but what he does say is so profoundly powerful. The gospel transforms your motivation for operating in the everyday mundane relationships of your life. Let's pray. God, thank you for the freedom and the rescue from ourselves that you offer us in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for every single person here that we would be willing to do the reflective work of our, in our own lives of taking some of these principles and really starting to consider where we're at. God, we need your Holy Spirit to evaluate well. And we need your Holy Spirit to take us back to the cross and to grow us into the likeness of Christ in that threefold process of spiritual growth. So Holy Spirit, just do what you need to do here. Help us to do the hard work and help us to discover the freedom and the life that is within Christ and how you, Jesus, alone can truly bring healing and health to our relationships. God, help us to do the good work as we sing and as we play together and help us to just have this prayerful posture that submits ourselves and surrender to you. We pray this in Jesus' name.